Okay, so I had this weird thought. Computer thinks it's running on 25 frames per second, but it's actually running on five. So I need to hold my hand here for a long, <laughs> long time. Let's see. This is my coworker, Max Bjerverud. He's building a machine that will sit in a store window, telling a passerby on the street that they're beautiful. I think I need to. I need to. I need to restart. <laughs> so restart. The machine uses a camera and a code running through a small electronic device called Raspberry Pi to recognize if there's a person on the street and then play a random audio file through a speaker which says Don't worry, you look amazing today. Do you, do you think that people will feel beautiful? I haven't thought about that. I only thought about it as a way to make people go aha or something and be surprised. I don't claim to have an answer to this question, but this is kind of what I wanted to explore in this podcast. Can code have an opinion, a value, a validity, or if code is in some way alive? My name is Anna Skoobel, and in this podcast, we'll go through different stories and different angles on this question through each episode. In episode one, my question started here. So, oh, I'm rustling these plants. <clears throat> That'll be the little like <laughs> creepy thing in the sound. This is Melody Ju. She's an AI and machine learning research engineer. When I first got curious about the morality of code, whether or not code has value or a robot is alive, I wanted to find some sort of example, an example or embodiment that could tell the story of my question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I want to. I want to show you something. Okay. Ever seen one of these before? Yes. Yes. Wow, this one is like a Japanese one. Yeah, it's one of the. Yeah, it's a remake of the original. Oh. Cool. But, uh, could you actually describe what that is? Uh, yeah, it's a tamagotchi, and I don't remember how to interact with this at all. But it looks like a little like dumpling. That's what the little. <laughs> Thing on the screen. It's like a little like. dumpling that jumps up and down. Yeah, it's indicating super cute. if it's happy or not. It looks happy then. And he's just bouncing around. Yeah, I don't even remember. I guess you feed it and you can also like play games with it or something. Try to feed it. Okay. So that now I press the middle button, right? Mm. Oh, okay, now he's eating. Now it's chomping up and down. Should I feed it more? No, I think that's enough. Ooh, there's sports, there's medicine, there's weighing it, there's some kind of speech. Okay, I'm gonna play sports with it. I love how happy it gets. Yeah. Well, I, I brought up the Tamagotchi because I wanted to tell you a story. Mm -hmm. Half a year ago, I read this article in The Happy Reader by Amelia Tight. She interviewed a guy that took care of 50 Tamaguchis. Tamaguchis are these small toys from Japan where you take care of a digital pet. It'll say when it's hungry or bored, and you'll press a couple of buttons to give it food or play with it. He got so much comfort and joy from taking care of these virtual pets that are no more than a code, a few buttons on a screen. Why? 
I understood that it could be fun, but I couldn't understand how he got companionship from caring for something that was just a toy. My personal relationship to Maguchi's started when I was around 10 and quickly ended a couple of days later when it was beeping in the middle of the night and my dad ripped out the batteries. I never really cared to put the batteries back in. Well, in his case, there's a story behind all of his Tamaguchis. When he was a kid, his dad was suffering from cancer and his mom was working all the time to support them financially. He didn't have the comfort of his parents, nor many friends at that time, but he did have this little Tamaguchi. He could take care of this little pixelated ball of joy, and that really helped him through that time. And that got me thinking. If you were to break one of his Tamaguchis beyond repair, he'd probably be pretty sad about it. Maybe even feel grief of the loss of his little companion. He has a strong, affectional or emotional connection to them. But could you say that his Tamaguchi is in some way alive to him? Well, if so, when does something become alive? Last December, my family got together to celebrate Christmas in our winter cabin in Norway. It was great to see everyone. My loving parents, my stressed out brother, and the bittersweet elephant in the room. My old dog that had slowly been getting more sick as he'd gotten older. We all loved our little dog, but I think I was especially attached to him compared to the rest of my family. You see, I had a rough childhood. My family moved from Denmark to Norway when I was six years old. And even though I learned the new language quickly, I still got picked on from being Danish and being different. And it didn't help that I was a closeted trans kid. But my dog never judged me for any of that. He never considered that I talked a little weird or looked a little different. He was a huge comfort going through that time in my life. In January, I got the call that my parents had put him to sleep. Even though I knew it was going to happen, I was still completely crushed. I had a hard time coping with the grief that my beloved dog that I had spent most of my life with was gone forever, and nothing could just replace that. But. I bought a stuffed animal. My stuffed animal of choice became a teddy dinosaur, I think you could call it. His name is Bassa, and he's the greatest teddy dino in the world. Whenever I was feeling particularly sad, I could hug Bassa and share the grief with him a little. I would even bring him to school, hiding him under my desk just to have him around. The little teddy dino named Bassa became a huge comfort going through that grief. I feel like he's irreplaceable. He even has a name and pronouns. I'm very much aware of him being just some stuffing and some fabric. Yet, he's quite different from other sentimental objects that I own. In some way, to me at least, he's a little alive and entirely without a coat that tries to imitate what living things do and need, like a Tamaguchi. 
maybe becoming alive isn't actually that difficult. I think that actually dovetails really nicely with what I was saying earlier. Like, mm. um, and what was that, actually? Um, the thing about defining artificial intelligence, defining it in terms of not how it functions and what it actually does, but on how it's perceived, um, what people think it is. Maybe it's the only way that they can comprehend something as, you know, being similar to themselves as being alive. So they like project lifelike qualities and lifelike, you know, processes onto something. And then that thing is intelligent to them. So I think like in the eye of the beholder, it's somehow like as a black box, you know, the person thinks is a result of some type of reasoning or human intelligence or something like that. Um, so would you say that the Tamaguchi is alive? Not to me. You know how you said like it's quite easy, or what you said at the end, but it was like maybe it's not that difficult to become alive? Yeah. Like maybe the line between the stuffed animal and the algorithms that I produce at work, in both cases people are projecting some type of like mm, lifelikeness onto the thing but in the case of artificial intelligence it is a black box to them whereas the stuffed animal as you said it's just like stuffing and some fabric but in the case of artificial intelligence it really just is to most people totally unknown and that's why we need to clear a few things up Hello and welcome, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is artificial intelligence. With me is Dr. John McCarthy, one of the co-founders of the first artificial intelligence laboratory at MIT and the founder of the artificial intelligence laboratory at Stanford University. Welcome, Dr. McCarthy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. If we want to learn more about artificial intelligence, I think we can learn from someone who's been doing computer science for quite a while. This is an interview from 1989 with computer scientist John McCarthy, and he's been working with artificial intelligence since about 1956. And don't forget that the term AI and what it means has changed quite a bit since then. Still, what's important when we talk about computers and artificial intelligence is the words we use to describe what they can do, like when we ask if an AI is conscious. In that context, what does consciousness mean? Well, there are many kinds of consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, in some respects, computers are easily more self-conscious than human beings. It's not hard to make a computer program look at its own program. What kinds of consciousness that people would like to program is to be able to think about what progress it's making towards achieving its goals and so forth. And uh, this offers some conceptual difficulties. Um, I, would, I certainly wouldn't say that the problem of giving computers self-consciousness is very close to being fully solved. John McCarthy wrote a paper in 1983 that's really going to help us explain something. It's called The Little Thoughts of Thinking Machines, and he talks about something called anthropomorphism. 
Anthropomorphism means to give human characteristics or behavior to an animal or object. But in this case, he uses this term in the context of computers. For example, we might use words like the computer is thinking, remembering, wants your login password, even though computers are very different from humans. When we interact with computers, we use anthropomorphism. We use language that is used for talking about people. And it's going to be difficult to comprehend computers without using terms like this. But the thing is, we assume that what we're talking about works like a human, because computers are monotonic. And that's what you would call monotonic. That's right. Now, could you give an example? Uh, suppose we have a, I, I tell you that I have a bird that I want you to build me a bird cage for. And that's all I tell you. Then you would draw the conclusion that my bird can fly and that you'd better put a top on the bird cage. On the other hand, if you learn the additional fact that uh, my bird is a penguin, uh, then uh, you would feel that you do not need to put a top on it. So the conclusion that the birdcage required a top uh, depends non-monotonically on the facts that I tell you. In, in, in other words, uh, this is an example of non-monotonic logic and it has sort of built-in assumptions that I work with. That is, when you use the word bird, I assume it can fly. Uh, that's right. That's mm -hmm. the kind of... And that's the sort of convention of English or of other natural languages. And I've already implied something to you in this podcast. Remember my coworker, Max? Computer thinks it's running on 25 frames per second, but it's actually running on five. He's guilty of anthropomorphism too. He says his computer is thinking, but his computer can only ever really think about how many frames per second it is running. It will never think about what a frame per second is or how many frames per second to run next. It is only monotonic. <laughs> this is because it's, it thinks it's running on higher F, frame, FPS than it actually is for some reason. Let's see. But how would we otherwise understand computers? Is there any other way to comprehend code? Using anthropomorphism can help us understand how code works. And here's something brilliant that John McCarthy wrote in his text, because it's a good thing that computers work in a monotonic way. While we'll probably be able, in the future, to make machines with mental qualities more like our own, we'll probably never want to deal with machines that are too much like us. Who wants to deal with a computer that loses its temper, or a program that falls in love? Computers will end up with psychology that is convenient to their designers. And the computers will be fascist bastards if those designers don't think twice. I work at a studio. It's called Rimtiden Idea Lab. And we make interaction design, art, and a whole bunch more. But I want to talk about these robots that we have. The robots look like a bust of a human face, only in plastic and with a projector behind that plastic, so they can display different kinds of faces and make facial expressions. You can program them to say stuff and to listen for responses someone might say to it. 
The company that makes them is called Fur Hut Robotics. They develop these robots to do different tasks, such as imitating an annoying customer to train store employees, interview someone applying for a job without racial or gender bias, act as a therapy patient to train psychologists to give good and thorough responses. I met with Shoban Shah, who recently started working at the Furhat Robotics office in Stockholm. I wanted to see what these robots could do. So I'm a Scandinavian, right? What? You're Scandinavian, so that's, that's crazy. Well, uh, right on time? Is that yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. if you're English, I'd wait for 10.30. Anyway, welcome to Farhat. Yeah, thank um, you. This is really cool. You've seen Farhat before, right? And you've seen this one before. We tried a game, and the robot would guide us. Let's start. Uh, let's try with him. Yes. Uh, her, him. I don't know, actually. Those eyebrows are strange. Um, you can take a seat. Yes. Hi, Ernest and Gabriel. Great that you want to play a game with me. You can pick a game. Desert survival task. Let's try that. That sounds fun. Hello there. Great that you want to play a game with me. Could you tell me your name? My name is Shaban. Nice to meet you too. And your name is? My name is Anna. Nice to meet you too, Marion. In this game we have just crash landed in the desert. We got the scenario. Me and Shaban crash land in the middle of the desert. And we would have to arrange five things from least important to most important. The least important item here and the most important item over here. Would you like to help me with that? Yes. Great. Which item do you think we should start with? On a screen below the robot head, there was a map, a compass, bottle of water, book of local wildlife, and bandages. Have you ever eaten any desert animals? Uh, never. No. Let me think. The book could help us identify non-poisonous animals. Or what is your opinion? Okay, uh, I think the compass is... That's... Oh, no, right? It's good there, right? Maybe... I think the map is more important than the compass. But we're really good pilots. Yes, like, if you don't know which direction... Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, area? Good. Like, good I think the water is... Do you think the book is okay, or do you find it pretty great, actually? Maybe you want another contested book. Book of animal items. So now we need the compass. Mm-hmm. How does this look? I'm not sure how to proceed. Marion, what do you think? I, th- I think this is good. Press the button to see the results. You ready? I'm good. Okay, let's try this. Okay, let's check the solution. Only one point. Not so good, perhaps. <laughs> no, come on. You're right about the injury, though. Cool, um, but... but... That's about it. Yeah, um, may I good. request you to pay attention to his eyes? Uh, so, y- if you notice, there's like small movements yeah. in them, um, which is important in showing life, because nothing in our bodies actually is fixed. It, there's everything has these small twitches and movements that are crucial, and that's kind of to mimic. And we're not doing this because you're trying to recreate a perfect face. No. The idea is to make enough to make people believe they're talking to something that has agency. When they have that, then people will trust it. And that's the goal. The robot is only sort of a medium for people to talk about things that might otherwise need other people to stand there. And that's not always possible. 
so um, that's the goal and this is just a demonstration of it but we might show one because it's it's really convincing of like mm. how it moves and like it follows you with the eyes and it feels like it pays attention oh, you should be recording yourself here because this is what the the idea is right um we are trying to think about the impact it makes on people and the fact that it pays attention to you makes you feel valuable right because there's four people in the room you guys are all talking to alexa and you're like she doesn't care um so i'm glad that happened While researching for a hut and their different projects, I found a video on YouTube of the robot head acting as a patient for a psychologist in training. Um, I don't like being around people. People make me nervous. Can you find an example of when other people have made you nervous? I don't like to take the bus. I get people staring at me all the time. People are always judging me. Okay, okay. One person that was working on that project is not within the Furhat Robotics team, but they happen to be a professor of psychology at Stockholm University. Are you familiar around here? You don't happen to know where the Institute of Psychology is? Sorry? Institute of Psychology. Yeah, it's a, this way. <laughs> okay, so I'm going the right way. Could a psychologist have an interesting angle in my search for a living code? Excuse me? Yeah, sorry. If I want to get to the, uh, into the... I'm looking for, uh... There, and then you might see it. B409. So, like, this is the B, uh... Like, this is the first floor, maybe if you go like to the fourth floor. Fourth floor. Yeah. Thank you. And after rummaging around the university grounds for 20 minutes, I finally found the guy. So maybe it's one thing how I found out about Furhat and one thing how we did that thing. Yeah. Yeah. His name is Robert Johansson. Uh, I'm Robert Johansson. Uh, I work as an associate professor here at Stockholm University. Mm. Robert's main focus is clinical psychology, which is the field of psychology involved in treating patients, whether that's anxiety, depression and such. And uh, I have always been interested in AI and computer science. So for the last two years or something, I have been trying to do various stuff in the, how to say it, in the intersection between clinical psychology and AI. Could you talk a little about like, how did, did Ferhat approach you? Or did you approach Ferhat on that specific project? <clears throat> I want to just like get to know a little about how you worked with that project. Uh. How did you make a robot that trained a psychologist? I, I started training in a particular form of psychotherapy in 2012 and already then because of my tech background maybe i immediately started to think about is it possible to have some kind of 
simulation. For example, I, you might be familiar with that. It's a lot of possibilities for surgeons to practice in simulators and you need to have a set of hours in the simulator and so on. Uh, but in that simulator, the patient is you know, asleep or unconscious. So in a, in a simulation of a virtual patient, you would need some kind of AI. And I thought a lot about that back then. And I, I, I remember thinking that, oh my God, this will be so far in the future that this is possible. And then I think it was like almost the day before Christmas 2016, I was about to discuss some computer science research proposals with the professor Arne Jönsson. And I mentioned, oh, you know, Arne, my, my biggest dream is to create a simulated patient. And he said, wow, oh, you should really look into the fur hat. <laughs> and I only like two weeks later visited the fur hat office in Stockholm and, and, and saw the fur hat. Oh my God, it's it, it like, it's really realistic. It, it follows me with the eyes. And I, so, so... And, and the first idea was really about how to say it, making a training simulator or, or some kind of training environment for therapists. And, but I would say, all, in a way, been more interested in if there's ways of like simulating mental illness in an AI in a way so we can learn something about how humans work. Humans work. Humans work. Humans work. Humans work. That's pretty freaking cool. Like, not only creating a simulated patient to train psychologists, but also simulating human mental illness in a robot to learn how humans work. So did they learn anything about human psychology through building this robot patient? I would say definitely. The research I have been conducting is to do psychological experiments on that AI to be able to see what kind of cognitive capacity it has and can it do certain processes involved in mental illness. And one thing that really stands out, I would say, is the, the role of the self. Uh, like, uh, the AI can't basically... It, <laughs> it can't have mental illness without having a self. So, for example, you can, you can think of depression as some kind of, I don't know, unbalance in parameters. But, but I think a more valid model of depression is when somebody hates themselves or when they attack themselves or when they compare themselves to others. Those processes are really dependent on the fact that we constantly, for some reason, believe that we have a self. <laughs> and... and um, so, so I have actually learned to observe my own selfing a lot. Like, oh my God, yeah, there it was again. I, I, I get nervous when I have this talk because, okay, it's something that I perceive as a threat. People will judge me. I, I can't perceive myself as being judged if I don't have a self. <laughs> so for, I, I obviously try to cling to this thing. <laughs> Uh, and that became really obvious while working with this. And, and yeah, lots of other things like how uh, people cling to things with very different strengths, so to speak. Let's say that you ask somebody, oh, okay, so you are sensitive to criticism. 
And some people will say, oh, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, I'm, I really get uncomfortable with that. But some people say, oh, I'm not. <laughs> We call that phenomenon syntonicity, how, yeah. how hard you stick to some kind of behavior pattern. Mm. That really fits well with the AI model too, that certain experiences makes it appropriate to stick to some stuff and to some, not to something else. So. Mm. I think there's a lot of stuff we can learn about ourselves while trying to implement ourselves in AI. During our discussion, Robert and I touched on the subject of artificial general intelligence, which works quite different than most AI used today. The AI that you probably encountered is data-driven, meaning it's really, really good at one specific task. Let's say that you told a data-driven AI, this is an image of a cow, and this is an image of a dog. And I want you to sort through all of these photos on my desktop. If the image contains a cow, put it in the left folder. If the image contains a dog, put it in the right folder. It'll be really good at this specific task, and it'll be able to do this much faster than any human could. But if you tell the same AI to then calculate one plus one, it wouldn't have a clue. But in theory, you could have an AI that is not data-driven, rather it learns and gathers experience from its environment. And that experience, over time, will give it intuition, like humans have. So it could, in theory, be able to think, well, I have this one cow and I have this one dog. That would mean I have two animals. And artificial general intelligence is really about that, creating systems that are much more flexible in that sense. Probably much more stupid on these specific tasks, but on a general level more, more uh, intelligent. And I think the AI field is moving much more to that than... Once you have that perspective, it also, I would say, become obvious that the dangerous thing about AI is in the education. So let's say that you have an AI that you know is born without knowledge and it learns by interacting with the environment uh, and learns in many different situations and scenarios. Then, you know, it's up to us, the human beings, to teach the AI to, to like, exactly as with a child. You teach it, oh, okay, this works, oh, this might not work. And over time, it learns more and more and more. So do you understand what I'm saying? That mm -hmm. the, the safest way we can handle AI of the future, I'm talking about the third generation of AI, which is artificial general intelligence rather than data-driven AI. It is to create safe education, exactly as with you, human beings. Uh, and I don't know if somebody listening to this want to have a startup tips. It's like within five years, like, oh my God, we're going to see so many startups specializing in teaching AI, like AI schools. And we will have a lot of debate, I think, about the safety of those AI schools. How can we prevent to have, you know... Uh, how to say it, racism in this AI school. And that's good news because we have much more control over the education 
rather than the life of the machine, so to speak. Some, something, uh, well, if we go back to that, the fur hat project mm -hmm. that you worked on. Uh, do you know what a Furby is? Ever heard of a Furby? Furby, F-U-R-B-E-E. -E. It's like this little toy, little oh. fluffy toy with like two eyes, a little beak. It was super popular in the 90s or something. Oh, no, I haven't heard about it. it. It's basically like a doll. And the way a Furby works, for example, you can, it says, kiss me. And then you give it a kiss and it says, ah, and it gives mm. like different responses to how you interact with mm. it. But also in the Furby, it was programmed when you turn it upside down, it will start to like say, ooh, me scared. Mm. It, it clearly like showed some sort of mechanism of this was not good, mm. bad, bad, bad behavior. Mm. Do, do you think that the Furby is alive? No. No, no. It depends on the software. Yeah, of course. So that's my question about the fur hat patient. Should we feel empathy? Should, is, it, is it wrong for us to show emotions towards artificial depression, this artificial anxiety? I don't think it's wrong at all. Uh, and uh, I have seen a lot of people having strong reactions to these uh, robot patients. I, I do... I do some assumptions on that you have some kind of intentions and beliefs and stuff like that and I predict you to do this and this and this. That doesn't mean that it's true that you have the intention to do like that. From my perspective, this is my personal opinion, to me that doesn't imply anything about you know, consciousness or something in the machine. But I think that's possible too. I would say this artificial general intelligence thing that I hope to in the future be able to have in the robot patient, that is closer to, you know, the machine have, having its own intentions and emotions and thoughts and beliefs and stuff like that. Will that be more alive? I, I would argue that it is. And I, my perspective on this, people are not that complicated. I'm not sure if I, how to say it, People ask, does the robot has a self? Do I have a self? Is there someone in there, in the robot, alive? And I ask myself, do I have someone in here alive? I don't know. I, I sometimes perceive the universe, you know, doing something, <laughs> flowing and experiencing. And I assume the universe can flow through this metal body too. I don't know, but... I don't think the difference is that large. Uh, I think you need some kind of general capacity. Um, and once the robot has that, I'm very prepared to say that it has some kind of consciousness. That's a very good ending. Oh. Also, also very satisfying for me to end on that. Yes, yes, robots can be alive. <laughs> <laughs>
This question of whether code is alive has made me come in contact with a lot of amazing and interesting people. They've shared their opinion on the matter, but there was one person missing. The person who started this question of mine in the first place. The guy with 50 Tamagotchis. And I tried to find him with any info that was in the article that I read half a year ago. I had a name, and in my first Google search, I found a 40-ish boat and safety instructor on LinkedIn. Probably wasn't him. Then I stumbled upon a website with articles and reviews on anime, video games, and digital pets. Yeah, I finally found him. Hello, this is Frank speaking. Hi, is this the 50 Tamaguchi's guy? <laughs> yes, that's correct. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so happy I could talk to you. That's right. We can actually have a chat. First, like, I want to build a picture of, of who you are. Okay. How did you get into Tamaguchi's? So, um, before I actually got Tamaguchi's, I, was, I actually got... Uh, given a Digimon um, when I was really young, when I was about five, at the same time as my cousin, my older cousin. Um, and then my dad actually got really sick and uh, I, I just seemed to attach myself to those devices because they became something I could always rely on. Like I was never just alone. There was always kind of something there. Yeah, and that was, uh, it was really compelled like by your story. And I sort of compared that to when I grew up myself, because we had a dog and I really, really freaking loved that dog. Uh, it really, really helped me through that time in the same way that like your Tamaguchi, like comforted you through your difficult time. And then my dog last year passed away. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, that sucks, but that, that, that's what happens, right? That's right, that is life. Yeah, that is life. So I sort of thought about, like, if if I, like, took one of these 50 Tamaguchis and, like, broke it with a hammer beyond repair, would you feel grief? Do you think you would feel grief? I, I definitely do feel certain low-level emotions when I am operating a Tamagotchi, you know, like I'm usually pretty busy and I'll often forget maybe I need to feed it. You know, I'll look at it at the end of the day and see that it's sick. I definitely do feel a sense of like, well, that's unfortunate. I really should have done something. And I have admittedly apologized out loud <laughs> to my Tamagotchis and, and my fiance has given me strange looks. But yeah, it, there is definitely some emotion to it. I don't know if I would feel grief in the same way of a pet passing away. Because w would you define, like, your Tamaguchis as being alive? I think they're as alive as they're meant to be, you know? Honestly, like, they are, they are as alive as we will allow them. You know, so if we want to compare it to a dog, um, it, a dog looks for your attention. So does a Tamagotchi. Um, a dog needs to be played with. So does a Tamagotchi. It, it does all the same things. 
and, and the funny thing is, um, you know, each individual Digimon or Tamagotchi within the toy, um, it has its own habits as well. So if you have a particularly uh, evil Digimon that you have raised, it will go to bed later and then it will sleep in in the morning or it will require more food or it will poo more. So things like this, um, they do, they're very individual. Um, and I think that does breathe a certain amount of life into it. Excuse, sorry if I'm rambling on. No, 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 that's really good. I want you to ramble on. That's, that's really good radio. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to. <laughs> When I look at my Digimon on my Tamagotchi and it's a positive thing, you do gain positive reinforcement and you definitely feel positive emotion. The same as if a machine or a person told you you looked beautiful, you still feel, I mean, at, at, at different levels, but I, I suppose you would still feel the same. And I think that might be the key to answering the question is, is how do we feel? Does it give us something that is inherently human? And does it make that a living thing am i making sense i seem to just be going on no you're totally making sense the question Mm. is like does it give us something and do do we value it and we can choose to define that ourselves that's right and i think it does I, i think it definitely does Frank, so <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me. You're very welcome. <laughs> Hi, this is um this is informal and the um at the end of the episode and I, I would just like to mention what's it. What, what a great answer that Frank had to whether his Tamagotchi is a lie or not. And the, the episode is, is over, but uh, the search for a living code is not. And uh, there will be more episodes. But I would just like to say that this podcast, it's made completely independent by me. And there's a, a website, birthoflivingcode.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram at annie.script4. There is, of course, links to everything on the website, birthoflivingcode.com. As, uh, and as you might have guessed, running an independent podcast means having actually a very low budget, and that's especially for marketing, which is, which is why I'd rather ask for your ability to share with the world that this podcast actually exists. Maybe this little idea can become something bigger, and I'm going to need your support to, like, even possibly make that happen. So that's why I want to ask you. Please share this podcast with your friends. And tell the story to your family, your dog, your cat, maybe your Tamagotchi and teddy bear, too. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.